You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. All right, so today's scripture reading is going to be in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. Expectations. It's been said that expectations are just premeditated resentments. So all we're doing when we expect something is just preparing ourselves to be let down. We're taking the first steps down the path that ultimately leads us to disappointment. I thought you were going to take out the trash, but you didn't, and now I'm sad. (laughs) See, we've all had enough experience with expectations that we feel like we've got it figured out. We feel like we know how to guard against this eventual disappointment. We've been disappointed too many times in the past, and we've come to believe that our expectations are themselves the problem. We think, if I just set my expectations low, then nothing's going to disappoint me. I won't be disappointed when things don't go my way. But this is fool's gold, and we all know it. It looks right from a distance, but when you get close enough to inspect it, you figure out that it's not the real deal. It didn't fix the problem. And you know how I know? Because you're still disappointed. And the reason our expectations can be called premeditated resentments is because through our expectations, we are projecting the longings of our heart. We're projecting the longings that nothing in this world can actually satisfy. I thought once I got the promotion, I'd feel approved. I thought if I started sleeping with him, I'd find the intimacy I was actually looking for. I thought my higher paying job would give me more joy in life. I thought if I gave her what she wanted, she'd stay. I thought with more money, I'd feel more comfortable and secure. I thought if I got married, I wouldn't feel so alone. Our expectations are eventually only disappointments because we are looking for the things of this world to give us what they can't. We're looking for people to give us what only the Creator can give us. And our expectations are at the heart of what Paul is addressing here in this passage. See, what we've been saying throughout this series is that the message of Romans is a message about how God forms a new humanity, full of people demonstrating the light and life of God's kingdom in and to a brutal and broken world. And my main point, the thing that I want you to take away from this passage this morning is this. In Christ, we have died to the expectation of fulfilling the law 
so that we can live in the expectation of the law fulfilled. We have died to the expectation of fulfilling the law so that we can live in the expectation of the law fulfilled. And I'm going to look at that this morning in three points. How we expect to come to God, how we expect to live as Christians, and how we expect to be treated as children. So point number one, how we expect to come to God. Let's start by looking at verse one. Or do you not know, brothers or brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. All right, so commentators have kind of quibbled over whether Paul is referring to the Roman law here, the law of the land, or if he's referring to the Jewish law. It's probably the Jewish law, but in all honesty, it doesn't really make a difference. Not for the point that he's trying to make right here anyway. His point remains the same. Death breaks our contract with the law. Once they've died, they don't need to worry about obeying speed limits or paying their taxes. Nor do they need to worry about eating an animal that they found already dead or maybe itchy spots that they find on their body. Death breaks our contract with the law. And in our text this morning, what Paul is doing is he's actually offering a second answer to the question that we picked up last week, the question posed in chapter 6, verse 15. The question is this, does the gospel leave you free to live any way that you choose? And his answer is no. Spoiler alert. In fact, he responds by no means. So it's not just no, it's an emphatic no. But it's a reasonable question, right? Probably one many of us have asked. It's a reasonable question flowing from the gift of God's grace, and that's why Paul gives so much space to it in his letter. But we have to admit, we have to admit that this reasonable question comes from a place of expectations and assumptions. To ask if I'm saved by grace, can I now live however I want? The expectation is that the way I want to live my life, I believe that that's going to bring me the most joy, the most peace, the most comfort, the most meaning. It assumes that I know what is best for me. And it implies the opposite, right? It implies that God's way won't do these things. See, we don't have to look very far in our world for examples of this. Queen Elsa puts it like this. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. See, she expects it's the absence of constraints and the complete ability to live how she chooses that proves to give her life the most freedom, the most meaning, and the most joy. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll realize that this is not a new storyline. Even from the beginning, we've let these expectations slip in. We listen to the serpent, right? The serpent comes to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened. We listened to the serpent's arguments and we found them reasonable. We started to say, you know what? Yeah, maybe God's way isn't what's best for me. Maybe I do know better. Maybe freedom is really found in what I want to do. We expected that real freedom, real goodness, is found in our definitions of right and wrong, despite what God had said. And it's this same kind of expectation that pops up again in the question of, if I'm saved by grace, can I now live however I want? But in Paul's answer here, and what we're looking at this morning, he helps us out by illustrating his his point with marriage. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. 
But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. All right, again, Paul is pointing out that even in marriage, it's death that breaks the contract. In the illustration, if the husband dies, then the marriage is ended. And this makes sense to us. I don't have to convince you of this. We've heard it countless times in weddings and at movies. It's till death do us part. It's death that ends the marriage. And so what Paul is saying here is that in our pre-Christian condition, we were married to the law. Whoever you are and from whatever background or upbringing, God created you to live in line with his holy standards. From, from whether it's the, this is the first time that you've heard this or it's the hundredth time that you've heard this, this is true. And a bit of recap, remember back in Romans 1, we, we read that for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without an excuse. God's holiness and righteousness have been on display for all to see since the beginning of creation. No one is without excuse. And while you may not have grown up Jewish, each of us had a law. Again, this is recap. Each of us had a law that we lived by. We all had rules or guidelines or standards that we held on ourselves that we thought were going to make us uh, achieve salvation in the end someday. We would get fulfillment or whatever we're, we're headed towards at the end. Maybe we're trying to balance those scales of justice. We thought if we lived our lives a certain way, we'd do it. And so in that way, each of us were married to the law. And see, while we tend to treat the law like a trail guide, right? It helps us navigate through the forest of this life, hoping that we can achieve and reach salvation on the other, on the other end. It's really more like the check engine light in your car. It tells you something is wrong, but it can't actually help you fix it. But to press into Paul's illustration here, it's more like saying that the law is like your closest relationship. And again, he uses marriage. See, that person, whoever it is, whether it's a spouse, a friend, a relative, they know you the best. They often know what's best for you, even when you can't see it yourself. And they know the quickest and clearest way to tell it to you. But even when they say things correctly, even when they say it in the most loving way, sometimes you won't receive it as loving you believe that this isn't best for you. You believe that, that this is oppressive to you because the problem is in your heart. When that check engine light pops up, you think it's trying to hold you back. You don't see it as a loving notice that something's actually wrong. And so to a heart that's not been changed by God's grace, this is what being married to the law is going to feel like. You'll think it's just there to tell you your flaws, to tell you the ways that you don't stack up. It's just going to point out your shortcomings. See, and you're going to think, and because you're the problem, you're going to perceive it as nagging instead of loving. But before God's grace gripped your heart, you tried to make the, I know you did, you tried to make the nagging go away. You tried to make it stop by pressing in. You said, I'm just going to work harder. I'm going to approach God on my terms, expecting if I simply just do better, what, what, what we perceived as nagging, the nagging reminder that I'm not good enough, it's just going to go away. Eventually, if I work hard enough, I'll feel the approval that I'm looking for. I'll feel the peace, the joy, the comfort, the security that I'm looking for. 
See, we just wanted freedom from the stress of knowing that we don't stack up. But again, we didn't realize that what we thought was nagging was really just him being loving to us. By pointing out that something was wrong, he was turning the check engine light on. Now, maybe someone in here, in here is listening and saying, all right, Matt, but that's your problem. I haven't been approaching God on my terms. Not by obeying. I've been approaching him on his terms. I know my Bible. He commands that we obey him. So how am I approaching him on my terms if I'm just doing what he asked? But that's where you're wrong. God doesn't just command obedience. He commands perfect obedience. And as the Apostle John points out, if you say that you haven't sinned, you're fooling yourself. And so even, even the most righteous among us in here, in the flesh, has broken his commands. And so any attempt, any attempt to approach him in your own obedience is just approaching him on your terms. Because you've already broken his terms. Listen, maybe this doesn't describe your past, but it actually describes your present. And I'm, I'm, I'm honest, I'm getting a little ahead of myself right now. But what Jesus says is in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so what you need to hear is that it's only through faith in Christ's life, his sacrificial death, his death for your sin and my sin, and his powerful resurrection. Only through faith in his work, regardless of how hard you've worked, only through faith in him can you come to him. Any other way is approaching him on your own terms. And so we all tried to come to God in our own ways. We were in a marriage to the law, a marriage we tried to work really hard at, but to no avail. And unless someone died, the contract of the marriage was still binding. All right, so let's look at point number two, how we expect to live as Christians. And we'll pick it up in verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has, raised, has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. All right, so it's important for us to remember the question that Paul is actually answering. If I'm saved by grace, can I now live however I want? It's important because as we've just said, before we were Christians, we were trying to earn our way in. We were trying to earn our way to salvation, to fulfillment. But the, but the temptation now is that now that we're Christians, we're going to be tempted to just throw the law off altogether. But look here in verse 4. Rather than sticking with the illustration, Paul actually breaks away from it in order to apply the truth to us. He's not just breaking away from it because he doesn't understand his own illustration. He's doing something important. Rather than saying that the law is dead like the husband, he says that we are dead to the law. So you remember back in chapter 6, Paul wrote, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will, know, we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, why is this important? It's important for at least two reasons. Reason number one, through faith, we have died and been raised in Christ, again in verse four, so that you may belong to another. 
our marriage to the law has ended lawfully through death so that we will be married to Christ. Death has not caused us to be widowed. It's caused us to become into a new marriage. And it's marriage, it's a marriage that has no end because as Paul wrote earlier, we have been raised in Christ. And so this marriage is eternal because his life is eternal. Theologian F.F. Bruce puts it like this, having been raised from the dead, he will die no more. Therefore, this new marriage relationship will not be broken by death as the old one was. So that, that's the first important reason. We've died so that we can belong to Christ in a new marriage. But reason number two, and I need you guys to listen to me on this one, it means that Paul is not nullifying the law. The law didn't die. We did. Commenting on this section, uh, theologian John Calvin says, we need to remember carefully that this is not a release from the righteousness that the law teaches, but a release from its rigid requirements and from the curse that comes from it. Paul is not saying that we are not to live holy and righteous lives. Jesus Christ is God, and God's character has not changed. His expectations of holiness and righteousness in his people, it has not changed. Instead, he's saying that we are not to live holy and righteous lives in order to earn our salvation or to keep our salvation. He's not saying the law isn't good. He's just saying the law isn't a good savior. And we know this because later in the chapter, Paul's going to go on to say, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so this adjusts our expectation of what grace means. It's not freedom to sin, but freedom to obey. But how does that work? Well, Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, being married to Christ is the final answer to the question, can I live however I want? No, because we are in love with Christ. See, any loving relationship constrains us. Anyone that's been in a loving relationship knows, though, that these constraints are actually freeing. This is why the illustration of marriage is so helpful, right? When, when I married my wife, I gave up the right to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, however I wanted. In that sense, marriage is constraining. But because of the love that I have for her, I'll gladly give up my freedom to do what I want when I want to do it. If it means that I'm pleasing her, and I'm able to be with her, if it means she's pleased in me. See, in Christ, we are loosed from the law's constraints in order to be constrained to the law in love. Just as a fish is not free on the land but finds its true freedom in the constraints of the water, in marriage, in our marriage to Christ, we find our true freedom to serve him in the love relationship we've been created for. See, we are released from our expectation that if we keep the law well enough, we'll be saved. But instead of, instead, having been raised in Christ, we now expectantly, hopefully, eagerly, joyfully, freely obey the law out of the love for the one who gave it. So through the illustration of marriage, Paul teaches us that we aren't free to live how our sinful flesh wants, but free to live our lives in love with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we have died to the law. And we're free now to put off our old self and put on the new self by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're free to bear fruit for God. 
And so as Christians, we're called to live our lives in a loving marriage with Jesus, to bear fruit for God. Simple, right? Well, as simple as it may sound, we all know that simple doesn't always mean easy. All right, so point number three, how we expect to be treated as children. Look with me in verses five and six. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. All right, so maybe you're saying, so what does this all mean? Like for real, how is this really just not a, a, a different way to say works-based religion? Like I've still got to serve him, right? I, he, he still wants obedience, right? I still have to work hard to keep him happy, right? But, but read again in verse six. We serve him in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And that's what it's all about. It's about serving him in the spirit. See, that's the difference. When you say, I have to, you're just showing that you're still viewing this relationship in the way of the written code. But that's not the way of the Spirit. See, in the old way of the written code, we see that our sinful passions were aroused by the law, right? One author puts it like this. What the law does in the absence of the inward teacher of the Spirit is more and more inflame our hearts so that they boil up with lusts. Right? Mufasa tells Simba, don't go into the elephant graveyard. What's the first thing Simba wants to do? He wants to go into the elephant graveyard. I tell my boys, don't touch the lamp. What's the first thing they want to do? They want to touch the lamp. See, before you knew it was wrong, you didn't even care. But now you know it's off limits. You're drawn to it. And Paul's saying that this isn't the law being bad, but it's, it's our sin being aroused by the goodness of the law. And then in verse 5, he's going to go on to say that all that that's going to do is produce the fruit of death. But as we saw earlier, if you're a Christian, you've died in Christ. We've been released from that deadly marriage, and now we're freed to serve him in our new marriage. But the question is, how do we serve him in the way of the Spirit? What expectation of mine needs to change? What needs to become real for me to actually live this way? See, for us, expectations may just be premeditated resentments. And because we're human, this is, this is how we think, right? That, that, that any time we have an expectation of others, it, it's going to turn out to be our disappointment because they've always let us down. No one has everly, ever met our expectations. And so because that's how we think, we project that onto God and believe that's how he thinks. And so we, we hold ourselves back from him. We, we want to serve him in the way of the written code. We want to, because it gives us leverage in the relationship. It allows us to say, this is how hard I've worked for you. So that we're, we're, we're guarding ourselves, thinking if he lets us down, I can always leverage my obedience. But we can't do that if this relationship's built on pure love. Pure love is not a give and take. It's only a give. See, we know in our heads that God accepts us through Christ, and he calls us to come to him in complete confidence that we're his children. But we often feel like he's just sitting up there disappointed. We think, yeah, okay, he treats us like kids, but, but, but like a father sitting in the dark waiting for his daughter to come home after she missed curfew again. Just sitting there disappointed, stewing. Oh, wait till she gets home. She's going to be grounded for a year. 
See, we always think that if God is anything like us, he's got to have a limit to his patience. And so we expect that we're always just one sin away from reaching that limit. Friends, that's just it. God is not like us. Yeah, I thought that might be good news to somebody. God is not like us. To serve him in that way is to serve him by the written code and not by the spirit. See, we sin. We, we break God's commandments. We confess it here every single week because we know it to be true. Theologian John Knox puts it like this in one of his corporate confessions in the Book of Common Order. He says, we confess, and, and again, this was meant to be read publicly on behalf of the church, we confess that we are miserable sinners, conceived and born in iniquity, so that in us there is no goodness, for the flesh evermore rebels against the Spirit, whereby we continually transgress your holy precepts and commandments, and so purchase to ourselves through your just judgments, death and damnation. I mean, sheesh, right? Like, if, that, if that's us, if that's true of us, which we know is true of us, then no wonder we fall into worrying about whether or not he's going to be continually disappointed in us. If we confess that every single week, then what we're saying is that, yeah, I know he loves me, but like, look at this list of things I've done again. But this is just us projecting our thinking onto God. Because this is how we feel about others who constantly let us down. There's a limit to our patience with other people, and so we expect that's true of God. But listen, Knox's prayer goes on and says, Nevertheless, for Jesus Christ's sake, show your mercy upon us. See, if you are a Christian, then the Father doesn't look at you like some angry deity always shaking his head. His expectations for you are completely fulfilled in Christ. Christ is now your living expectation, and that fact changes how we serve him. It changes how we come to him. It changes how we uh, expect to live in, the, in light of that, and it changes how we can expect to be treated as his children. See, the Father's expectation of perfect obedience fulfilled in Christ's life. His expectation of just wrath against sin fulfilled in Christ's death on the cross. And now, through faith, you can expect that he will look at you the way that he looks at Christ. The reason you'll never reach the Father's wit's end is because Jesus Christ never reached the Father's wit's end. See, through faith in his perfect death, or excuse me, in his perfect life, his death, and his powerful resurrection, we have been raised out of the grave with him. We are in union with him. We are one with him. And so the Father will never cast you out because he will never cast Jesus Christ out. If you are in Christ, Jesus would have to climb back into the grave for the Father to take his love away from you. So when you're tempted to wonder, did God really say? See, I know you've done this before. I know it. I've done it before. See, you've placed your expectations in people. You've looked to others to find joy and security and comfort and hope, and they've all let you down, every single one of them. And so when you're, you're tempted to wonder, how is this going to be any different, friends? None of them have died for you. None of them went to the cross for you. None of them now live for you. You can say confidently, I will never be forsaken by the Father because Christ was forsaken on your behalf. See, when you're tempted to think, did God really say, just look to the cross. 
Look to the empty tomb. See your Savior, the lover of your soul, seated on his heavenly throne. And then serve him. Love him. Not because you have to. That's the way of the written code. But in the spirit of the love that he's poured into your heart. In the confidence that you are his child. Because you delight in him. And he delights in you. See, this is what it means to serve in the spirit and not by the written code. The expectation of the law, of fulfilling the law is gone so that you will now live in the expectation of the law fulfilled in Christ. And if you are a Christian, this is how God thinks of you. And this is how you can expect him to treat you. This is what compels us to live lives of holiness and righteousness. This is God's love. This is where all of our expectations find their true and rightful end. The satisfaction of all our hearts longing. Every expectation that we've had is found in, fulfilled in this love relationship with our Savior. How wonderful is this? Friends, find in him the fulfillment of all your expectations and live your life in the beauty of this love. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we...